Good morning to everyone at the 95th Street campus, those of you at Bolingbrook, Hobson, Wheaton, those watching on the internet, just so grateful to be with everyone. Let's go back in Chicago history to 1903. Remember? Were you around? Anyway, so uh, they... Chicago had the aspiration back then to compete with New York when it comes to theaters. And they built in 1903 the Iroquois Theater, the most glorious, elegant, glamorous theater in the United States at that time. Here's a picture of it. You may know where the Oriental Theater is today. It's now called, I think, the Ford Center Oriental Theater. That's a the exact location that the Iroquois was back in 1903. Here's a picture of the inside of the lobby. It was all finely carved white marble, and people were amazed. Folks were traveling from all over our nation to be a part of this grand opening, the the initial days of this glorious new theater. December 30th, 1903, that this uh, play took place at the Iroquois Theater called Bluebeard. The place was packed out. People had traveled from all over with great excitement. And in the second act of the play, wouldn't you know, the, uh, one of these lights, spotlights, sparked, and the spark lit a curtain on fire. The curtain spread to the props. The props lit the floor. And the next thing you know, this beautiful brand-new theater is engulfed in flames, and the people are panicking. They start running around to exit, and they can't find an exit. You know, it's interesting. The Iroquois Theater fire is what led to so many changes that we enjoy in modern buildings, like exit signs. That was the fire that resulted in them saying, we need to have illuminated exit signs so people can find the exits. That was the fire that led to panic bars and doors that open out. You know how we, uh, all of our doors are that way? In the Iroquois Theater, the doors opened in. And what happened was people who did find one of these doors, they were pushed by the people behind them into the door, and there was no room to open it. And the crowds that were stampeding led to these doors never being opened. And the tragic result, get this, 602 people died in that fire. Friends, you've heard of the Great Chicago Fire, which was like 30-some years earlier. There were only like 180 people that died in the Great Chicago Fire. This is the greatest tragedy, life lost, uh, in all U.S. history when it comes to a building fire. It's been called the Titanic of building fires. Just horrific. And when the news article started coming out as to what took place in that theater on that tragic day, it was just kind of ugly in so many ways. It was ugly in what it said about human nature. There was a survivor of that fire who described how he was uh, uh, just shocked. He threw himself under the bus in this description. But he said, none of us helped anybody else. He said, from what I saw, every single person was only fighting to save themselves. Now, there may have been others in the building caring for others, but this guy didn't see it. And when the firemen got in, they discovered that one of the main causes of death was trampling. People stampeded and stepped on others and killed them in the stepping. 
when they found some of these doors that opened in and that were never opened, bodies were stacked 10 feet tall as people had stomped on one another and climbed and shoved in an order to save themselves. They were killing others. So tragic. There was a woman who, the night in Chicago, after the fire, she was riding her streetcar to her home in Oak Park when she noticed a young woman in the streetcar just bawling and sobbing. And she pulled up next to this young woman and asked what was wrong. And the young woman explained that she was one of the survivors, one who had been in the Iroquois Theater as as it burned. And she was just sobbing. And the woman said to the young lady, you should be glad that you survived. And she said, I know I should be, but I keep thinking about what I did, and I am so disgusted that I didn't help anybody. And the older woman tried to comfort her by saying, listen, that's only natural. We have this human survival instinct that takes over, and no one is going to judge you for what took place, and you you really probably couldn't have helped anyone anyways because of the chaos and She said, helping others never crossed my mind. I never tried to help anyone. And I I believe that this tragic theater uh, fire is a little picture of life. It's a little demonstration of a reality that we need to face. Because our world is on fire and most people are living for themselves. Isn't that true? If you were to take a look at what the mission statement is of most people. They would never say this, but the reality is I live for me and I'm striving every day to build the best life I can build. I'm trying to be successful so I can have what I want to have and do what I want to do and experience what I want to experience. Most people, their purpose is all self. And it's just ugly, you know, when you say it like that. I live for me, you know. It's interesting. Even businesses are discovering how ugly that sounds. You know, businesses increasingly have mission statements. It wasn't always so, but they're kind of in vogue now. Originally, corporations chose mission statements that were very frank. It would be like, our mission is to defeat our competitors and maximize profit. And they discovered that employees were just like, oh man, when you say it like that, it's just so greedy, so self-centered. And so, if you'll notice the trend, increasingly corporations are embodying more benevolent mission statements like making the world a better place and helping people achieve their potential. And uh, it's why, because when you just say self-mission statement, it's just, ah, it's ugly. Now, you may say, as a Christian, we need to rise up and shift from a mission statement that's, I live for me, to I live for others. Sounds better. It is better, but I'm here to tell you it's not best. There's an even higher, more exalted purpose in living that I want to talk about. You'll see today's message title is A New Purpose, and uh, we're going to be discussing it in this series, Chain Reaction. We're looking at all the things that change when you love God. Uh, Really, a chain reaction is a domino effect, and the first domino to fall is love for God, and we're all about love for God at the Compass Church, are we not? Our mission statement, to love him more. So more love him. We're trying to build a community of people with impassioned affection for the Lord because we believe that when you love God, everything changes. Week one, we learned that the first change is a new love. 
in other words, when you love God, there's a new love you find yourself living out, and that's a love for your neighbor, a love for others. The more you love God, the more you love others. Last week, the title was A New Satisfaction. Those who don't love God think they can be satisfied with the experience of the things of this world, which you can't doesn't satisfy. And King David knew that in Psalm 63. He said, it's a dry and weary land. The only thing that satisfies my thirst is you, God. When you love God, you realize that it's through friendship with God, through experience of his presence and love, that your heart drinks deep and you say, yes, this is what I was made for, finding satisfaction in God. And this week, you find I got a new reason for living when you love the Lord. And what is that higher exalted purpose? Well, it's clearly laid out in our passage, which is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. Uh, Friends, these two verses are uh, just inspiring. I pray you love them, maybe memorize them, hold on to them, maybe embrace them as your personal life mission statement. You ready? Paul says in his letter to the church in Corinth, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Mm. Good stuff. You see in those verses that the mission statement Paul lives by and is challenging all of us to rise up to is a life devoted to Jesus Christ, a life lived for Christ. Remember, life devoted to self, uh, life devoted to others, it's better. A life devoted to Jesus Christ is best. Now, When I say the others, when you're devoted to Jesus, he will call us to love others, but our love of others is actually an expression of our devotion to him. And that's God's plan. I wonder if you can relate to this decision. I will live the rest of my life, not for me, but for him who died for me. Well, let's do this. Let's work through these verses kind of phrase by phrase, see if we can understand them fully and then live them fully as well. First one, Christ's love compels us. Friends, the love of Christ is a, it's, it's like a rocket fuel that compels you. The, the word compel, that is like an inspiration, motivation term. Christ's love for us, when you experience it, it inspires this life of living for him who died for you. Some people make the mistake of assuming that the Christ-centered life, the life devoted to Jesus, is one that participants embrace reluctantly. You know, it's like, all right, I guess I'll live for Jesus. You know, he did so much for me, I have no option, I suppose. All right, I sign up, I'll do it. No, it's not that at all, is it? Those of us who live a life devoted to Christ do so with passion, with fire in our eyes, with spiritual zeal. We say, I'm compelled, I'm on fire. That's the effect of love. Love makes people do crazy things. When you look at a young couple in love, you're like, wow, is that a motivator? I mean, they are writing poetry and composing long letters and uh, talking on the phone and texting all night and buying flowers. 
love. And friends, Christianity is a love thing. We are in love with Jesus Christ, and our love for him puts a fire in our eyes to where we consider it not an obligation, but a privilege to give our one lives in sacrificial service. Like we pour out our lives on the altar as a worship offering saying, take all of me, Lord. I love you, and I'm yours. Have you met Christians with that fire in their eyes? That spiritual zeal, oh, it's a beautiful thing. I wonder if you've tasted it. If not, I hope you do soon. Because not only is the Christian life devoted to Christ, but it's done so enthusiastically because Christ's love compels us. All right, let's move on. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Let's talk about this. The word convinced is a fun word. It's a Greek word translated convinced, but it's a judicial word, the Greek original. Meaning, like in the court of law, when you study or examine the evidence and arrive at a verdict where there is no ambiguity or question, it's a no-brainer. Upon looking at the evidence, I'm convinced this is what should be done. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, when you look at all the evidence, it's a no-brainer. Have you thought about what's before you? And, And what is he thinking about and considering what evidence that one died for all. It's the evidence of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that is so profoundly affecting Paul's perspective. He's like, think about it. Analyze it. You take a look at what he did and see for yourself what you think is the right way to live. We understand, uh, convinced that one died for all. There, there in four, wor- four words, there's the gospel of Jesus Christ. One, that's Jesus, died for all. That's us. And that's easy to understand, but this next phrase is a little more tricky. And therefore, all died. What does that mean? Did all of us die? You say, I didn't die. Well, actually, you did. In the death of Christ, your death was served. Theologians call this corporate solidarity, the mysterious union we share with Jesus in his death. His death is our death. Our death is his death. Uh, Jesus sees that we were in a desperate situation in need of forgiveness. Our sin was against us, demanding the death penalty be paid for justice to be served. And Christ links to us in a very mysterious yet real way. And on the cross, he serves our death sentence. And so when he died for all, you can say, all of us died. Yeah, my death has been Covered, done, served. Isn't that beautiful? And Paul says, when you think about that, when you weigh that evidence, you will become convinced that that is profound regarding my life and how I should live. So let's do that. If Paul wants us to think about it, examine the evidence, and realize how important this is, why don't we do it? What would it be like if Jesus never came and never died? What would our lot be right now if there was no cross? Friends, we would be sitting in our sin. Our sin, and boy, we have more of it than we can even remember throughout the years, the things we have done, said, thought. Oh my, we would be heavily soaked in the sin hanging on us right now. Not only that, we'd be alienated from God. God would be your enemy. 
And as you look towards him, he would be looking with those eyes of eternal separation. Not only that, hell would be your eternal destiny. With death looming for all of us, when that moment came, you would be sent to this world where there is no God in misery forever. That's our lot. Except the Savior came. The hero arrived on planet Earth 2,000 years ago. God in human flesh come out of love to rescue messed up people. Jesus is God in human flesh, and somehow spiritually he said, give me your guilt and sin. And we said, okay, and every bit of it was transferred off of us onto his shoulders. And Jesus took our sin to the cross, died in our place, and with the death penalty served, we now, what's our reality? We are forgiven. All of that guilt and ugliness is gone. We are in white robes, completely pure. It's it's removed. We stand with our head held high, being forgiven and cleansed of all of our moral failure. Unbelievable. And not only that, we have been reconciled to God. He's no longer our enemy. But more than just reconciliation, he says, call me dad. Come to me. You are my daughter. You are my son. There is this doctrine of adoption where we rush into the loving arms of our new heavenly father. Amazing. And he says, hey, look at it. We're going to spend eternity together. Not hell. This is going to be paradise. I'm preparing a place for you that will satisfy your soul in the deepest of ways. And together we will share all eternity. Friends, things have changed because of Jesus. Can you imagine looking at all of that and going, wow, Jesus, that's nice and all, but if you don't mind, I'm going to deny your request that I live for you, and I'm going to live for me. Goodbye. No, it's unthinkable in light of what he's done to save our souls. Paul says, when you consider the reality, the evidence, you become convinced the love of Christ is compelling me. There's only one way to live, and that is for him who died for me. I'm going to go to the next phrase. And he died for all that, here we go, this is the mission statement part of it, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. No longer live for themselves. I I, I like that. The, The no longer implies that we all started living for ourselves, but we need to come to a place where we no longer do. Everybody just gravitates to a path of self-centered, I live for me. I think it's this human, natural part of our sinful flesh. I mean, it demonstrated in the Iroquois theater fire. People just naturally have a me-first mentality. But God says, I do a work in people. I, I, I forgive them and I change them, fill them with my spirit. And there comes to a point in their gratitude for the cross where they say, no longer. That used to be how I lived, and I was a champion of self-centered living, but I'm done with it. No longer am I going to live for myself, but now I will live for him who died for me. Isn't that beautiful? For him who died for them. What does it mean to live for him who died for us? Obviously, that's Jesus. What does it mean to live for Jesus? 
You know, it's one thing to say it. I live for Christ. It's another thing to find ways to practically put that into play. And I really want to fight for clarity on how we can live out this Christ-centered mission statement. And so allow me to provide a, a, uh, a few, three actually, categories of how we can live for Christ. And then a few specific examples on how this looks in human life. The first category I'd point to is the church. Church. If you really want to live, not for yourself, but for Jesus, one of the things you can do is fight to build the church. The church is his love. The church is called the bride of Christ because he adores it. The church is his cause manifest, visible. It's God's people come together in community to share life and to impact the world. And Jesus longs for his church to be strong. And for it to be strong, it's going to take his people rising up and getting in the game and contributing with their time and their talent to the advance of his cause. That's why so many of you got the I'm in stickers on. You know, it's, it's your way of saying, hey, I've realized I don't want my life to be all about me. I want it to be about Christ. And if I can help his church be more effective, more healthy, more beautiful, well, then I'm in. And you've found a way to serve. You've found someplace. You know, we, we talk about our four priorities. Pursue, connect, serve, reach. One of them is serve in teams. And we've said this is central to the Christian journey. And so God's plan is not that a church be, you know, pastors doing all the work. God's plan is that his audience would become an army as they enter the battlefield and say, let's do this thing. And some are playing instruments and others are waving at cars in the parking lot and others are greeting in the atrium and others are working behind the scenes with technology and others are serving with children and students and others are leading small groups. But people have said, I got to get in the game. I don't want my life spent on me. I want it spent on Jesus. And by finding a role to play in the local church, by getting in, it's one of the ways I express my devotion, my mission in advancing his cause. So the church. To add to the church, I would add evangelism. Oh, there's a scary word. I hesitate to use it because it's so got a lot of baggage to it. But evangelism is simply helping people who are far from God discover the life with God they've been longing for all their lives, just didn't realize it. You see, this is what Jesus is so passionate about. When he came on planet Earth, he, he said, well, people are like, why are you here? I am here to seek and save the lost. That's why I've come, Jesus said. His mission was to help spiritually lost people come home to God. And if you really want to contribute to what Jesus cares most about, you'll be involved in helping people. And you may say, I can't. I can't do evangelism. I'm no theologian. I'm not articulate. I'm not persuasive. It's just not my gig. You know, I understand, but I would disagree. Because Jesus made it doable for everybody. That's what I enjoyed so much this past spring when we had our series called Pearl. Remember, Pearl was this five-part study of Jesus' modeling and his teaching, and how evangelism can be done by everybody. Remember, Pearl, I'll just remind you. P is for pray. Pray for your friends who are far from God. Can you do that? Sure. E was eat. Can you invite friends over for dinner and say, hey, I'd love to share some food with you? You're like, yeah, I can do that. 
A was ask. Ask some questions about themselves. Help the relationship deepen by saying, tell me about yourself. Uh, R was reveal. Reveal your own story to them. And then L was love. Love them continuously. Friends, these are doable. And when you do these things, relationships become beautiful and rich. And when folks are connected in a meaningful way to someone who's walking with Christ, the beauty of Christ becomes evident to them. Invitation to church becomes natural. And of course, and description of the gospel and how you can be right with Jesus just comes up. And the Lord says, trust me, this relational approach to evangelism is accessible and doable by everybody. And so if you really want to live for him, you got to do Pearl and say, let's get in this highly important mission. All right. So I promised three uh, categories of how to apply this mission, li- mission statement of living for Jesus. One, church. The other, evangelism. And the third, I'm going to call Compassion. One of the things that grieves Jesus deeply is seeing the broken and hurting world that we live in. If you have eyes that work, you will discover that far and distant lands as well as those close to us, there are lives that are just agonizing and writhing for lack of resource or pain from the brokenness of this planet. And God desires to mobilize his people to address that need. And every time you step forward in compassion and try to help a hurting person, The kingdom of God shines a little brighter in this dark world. Every time you live out the heart of God by helping someone in need, God says, my kingdom's advancing. You're living for me. And so finding tangible ways to be there for people in need is one of the ways uh, we advance the kingdom of God. So there are three categories, uh, church, evangelism, compassion. Now let me give you some specific examples One of the specifics, if you'll allow me, is my own calling into ministry. Uh, You may be aware that in college, I was a biology major, pre-med. I had been dreaming of being a doctor, a physician since the time I was a kid. And yet here in my senior year, I'm all set to go to medical school, and the Lord steps in. The Holy Spirit is shouting in my soul, Jeff, change of plans. I want you to be a pastor. And I spent quite a bit of time thinking through the financial implications of this career shift from medicine to ministry. And I'm like, this is not going to bode well for me uh, financially. And I'll admit, I struggled, at least for a time. And you know what helped me through? This verse. I began to cling to 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15 uh, in those days. The Lord said, Jeff, why are you living? Are you living for yourself or are you living for me? If you're living for me, you'll say, what do I want you to do? And if what I ask requires sacrifice and even suffering, for my sake, you'll embrace it. And I'm like, you're right. You're right. I don't want to live for self. I want to follow you. What do you want? Pastor. All right, let's do it. So there's an example of me being successful in this principle. I amaze myself how I can be successful in the hard things and fail in the easy things. So here's an example of my failure recently to live this out in a smaller way. A couple weeks ago, I was up at my parents' house in Lake Geneva. We were all together as an extended family because my brother Mark, who lives in California, he was in with his family. And so we're having a great time at my folks' place. I was walking in the afternoon through the living room when I noticed a bunch of family members 
on the couch watching a movie in the middle of the afternoon with lazy bums. I said, scoot over, I'm in on this. And so I, I joined him with a bowl of popcorn and an icy drink, and I'm just like, rah, 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 I'm having a great time. Well, towards the end of the movie, I noticed my brother Mark, who had not been a part of this uh, adventure, he, he uh, comes walking through, and he pauses to look at us, and he's got sweat dripping from his nose. And I'm like, dude, you're sweating. What are you doing? And he goes, oh, I'm just kind of cleaning up. Said, what do you mean? And he said, well, well, our kids, we had toys all over the yard, and the boat needed to be put away, and I had to carry back some stuff, just trying to help mom and dad get this place ready. Oh, rah, 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 that's good. And I had this sudden moment of conviction where I thought, am I living for Jesus? Am I living for the one who died for me? You may say, Jeff, that's your mission statement, except when you're on vacation. We all know that on vacation, we revert back to now I live for me because this is a vacation day. No, we don't revert back even on vacation. This mission statement of live for the one who died for us is 24-7. It's all the time. You're like, you're telling me you can't enjoy a movie every now and then? Listen, if the one we live for tells us to enjoy the movie, by all means, enjoy it. Problem is, I didn't ask him. Problem is, I was in a mindset of, I, it's my day and I'm going to do what I want, and I want to watch a movie. What I should have done is said, Jesus, even now, I am living for you. Lord, what would you have me do in this moment? And it may have been, I would have sensed in my heart, the Lord was saying, Jeff, enjoy, relax, watch the movie. It may have been, the Lord would have said, hey, get out there and work with your brother and help clean this up. I don't know. The point is that's concerning is I didn't ask or have that frame of mind. I was all about what I want. And so you discover that the living out of this, Lord, I'm all yours, this can be as glorious as a career change or as small as getting off the couch and helping pick up toys. A couple more examples. One would be my children. I'm going to brag on my kids. Yesterday, my younger two children were a part of a group of 45 people uh, from the Hobson campus that went and served in a ministry in Aurora called Hesed House, this home for homeless people. And uh, my younger two kids, uh, Jen, my wife, went with them, and she kind of cast the vision. She said, hey, kids, I think Jesus wants us to give the better part of this day in caring for these people who he loves so much. And my kids said, let's do it. I, they could have said, this is the last week of summer break. There's only a few more days for me to have fun. So, you know, I want to, but my kids said, you're right, mom, let's do it. And, and my kids were on their knees scrubbing and cleaning that place. And they were serving food to the 200 homeless guests who came through yesterday. And I am just so proud that they chose that path of making it about him and what he wants and how he's calling them to give. One more example, and this actually is about my brother Mark again, the one from California, and his wife, Amy. They uh, had an interesting conversation with me uh, a number of years back. My brother said, Jeff, I uh, just wanted to tell you what our dream is. He said, you know, we started having kids earlier than you, and it's true, uh, the both, they have two boys, both their boys are teenagers, and my brother said, do you realize my wife and I will be empty nesters by the age of 50? 
And he said, as a fireman, we've got a generous pension plan. And he said, my wife and I are figuring out a way that I can retire at 50. And our goal is at 50, we're just going to play away the rest of our lives. They have a lot of hobbies and recreational pursuits. I'm like, at 50, you're going to play away the rest of your life. I, didn't, I just kind of looked at him. In my mind, I'm thinking, not exactly a fitting response to a Savior who died to save your soul. But being the preacher, I didn't preach at him. I don't know. But someone preached at him. Two years ago, he and his wife were at church, and the message of Jesus Christ was being preached out in this concept of a response to the cross. And my brother and his wife came under deep conviction that the way they were living was self-centered and that their purpose was no higher than making their life better for them. And they repented of this self-focus and rededicated their lives to follow Jesus and be used by him in whatever way he would desire. And as they opened up their hands and said, Lord, take our lives and use us, God moved in them and said, I want you to foster And so two years ago, my brother Mark and his wife Amy took in two little boys from the inner city of San Francisco who were in a horrific situation, one aged six and the other eight. And they brought them in, and they've been with them ever since. In fact, a few months back, my brother and his wife adopted these two little guys. And so I have two new nephews. And when I was with my brother in this most recent visit, I I couldn't help but ask. I said, hey, you know, remember that old, uh, at 50, we're going to play our life away? How's that working out? And he laughed. And he says, that was pretty self-centered, wasn't it? Oh, I don't know. And he said, yeah, kind of got a new plan, Jeff. Turns out at 50, we're not going to be empty nesters. We're going to still be in the thick of this high calling called parenting. And it turns out that I'm not going to be retiring, he said. Uh, we got more mouths to feed, and the finances are going to require that I work uh, well beyond 50. And I'm like, dude, are you okay with that change? And he's like, now I am. He said, I, I just long for my one life to be used by God in whatever way he sees fit. And it's so beautiful. These two boys had never heard of Jesus Christ or God for that matter or for the Bible or the church. They understood nothing. And in two years' time, they have been loved by my brother and my other two nephews, and they have been introduced to the beauty of Jesus and his offer. They've both trusted Christ and are growing and thriving. And I just have to say, praise God. He committed to follow this courageous path of giving his life for his Christ and for what Christ would call of him. So I just got to ask you, what's your mission statement? Oh, I know. You say, I'm going to live for him who died for me. It's easy to say, isn't it? It's hard to do. Uh, I'll ask it again. What's your mission statement? Don't say it. Look at your life and analyze. When you get up each day and you fight, what are you fighting for? Is it to build a better life for you? Or is it to give your one life in service to the one who gave everything that you might live? I had an interesting uh, experience this week. We hosted the Global Leadership Summit. There are 
lots and lots of churches that become host sites for this massive two-day leadership training event. And I really enjoy it. You know, it's a chance for me to hear uh, some of the best communicators in the whole world. I just sit back. I laugh at their stories. I learn from their wisdom. They got snacks to eat. There's music that's extraordinary and videos that are inspiring. It's just a delightful time for me. And so I arrived on Thursday very excited to just sit back and be blessed. And I uh, came to the registration desk, which was being run from, by a woman in our church. And she said, Jeff, uh, which lanyard would you like? And I'm like, I don't get it. Do I have a choice? She goes, well, yeah, you do. So she said, there's the blue one, which is for conference uh, attendees. Or there's this one that says, here to serve. Uh, and it's, you know, got a, it says it all over the, the black strap here. She said, a lot of us on staff are choosing to wear this. It helps those who are guests here. I recognize that you're someone they can ask questions to if they need something. Or the leaders who are here, if they're in a pinch and they need to call you over to help out, you know, you're kind of saying, hey, I'm available, I'm here to serve. She said, or you can just enjoy yourself. (laughs) I I wish she hadn't made it so clear, you know. I mean, she just (laughs) pointed out the decision with a clarity that was quite frustrating. And I'm like, ah, ah. Aren't you proud of me? I chose the right landing. So, I have a question for you. Which lanyard do you pick? And I'm not talking about a two-day conference. I'm talking about your life. Are you going to say, hey, I do what most do, and that is I live for me. I live to try to make my life the best it can be. Or are you going to say, I am here to serve Jesus Christ. My life is yours. You died for me. I live for you. Just say the word. Call me at any moment. I am here to give myself as a worship offering to you. And I'm not just going to wear it today or tomorrow. I will wear this lanyard for the rest of my life. Which one will it be? And you're like, I don't like this. I'm not going to pick. By not picking, you're choosing to live for yourself. A choice is inevitable. And I would tell you, this is a waste of your life. You're too precious to squander your one life on selfish ambition. Rise up to the majestic call of the cause of Jesus Christ. He died for you and the world, for that matter. That we would rise up and give ourselves back to the one who gave himself for us. And say, I don't know what you're going to do with me or how you're going to use me, but I'm here. Take my life I'll live every day forever for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that Paul had that fire that he said, I'm compelled by the love of Christ. Thank you that Paul had the clarity and he just said it. Are you going to live for yourself? Are you going to live for him who died for you? God, we see it. In this moment, would you give us the courage to respond with boldness, to realize the choices to be made? And Lord, I think I speak for so many of us when I say, give me that lanyard here to serve. I will wear it with passion. For the rest of my life, Jesus, I live for you. To live for self would be 
an insult to the great sacrifice you have given to give me life eternal. I respond to your sacrifice by offering my own. I respond to your love by reciprocal love. I will love you by living for you this day and tomorrow and for the rest of eternity. We are yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.